For those of you who have children who've been downstairs, and those of you who have not never had the chicken pox, the 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 Hulls kids have chicken pox. So those red spots on your kids are not a pre-adolescent attack of acne. I also hear there is a, and it may be why the ranks are so thin tonight, that there is a major stomach virus that is making its way through the community. So, avoid all personal contact. Limit your Christian fellowship. What we're waiting on is, since Bryce obviously has the stomach flu and is not here tonight, to tape, tape record, we're waiting to see if Jim can, using the vast intellectual skills that God... <laughs> that God has given him and his... Uh, <coughs> see if he can rapidly figure out how to make the uh, computer work. Are you getting there? Yeah, I'm getting there. Okay. What we're going to do is we're going to work this out where a different person has responsibility for that at each class, so it's not going to be a, all on any one person. And we'll have to have at least one good backup so that... Uh, but we have to go through this because one class Sunday morning worked. The other class, and they did everything the same, the other class didn't work. So we're trying to figure out how to make it work so that we get a good download and then, uh, then we can put these things out on the Internet. But, it's, you know, we just all need to be a little patient with the process until we, till we figure it out. We're going to have some fun tonight. We're going to uh, get out of James for a few minutes, most of the hour, and jump into... Matthew and look at the parable of the sower. You think you're ready? Okay. Well, if you're ready, we'll begin. Let's begin with a word of prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. Utilization of 1 John 1, 9, if necessary. And just a reminder... I'm covering the whole doctrine of walking by the Spirit on Sunday morning in the Galatians class, and that's going to be a very important doctrine to understand. The goal is not to recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. The goal is to, from that point on, walk by means of the Holy Spirit. So it is progression. It's not just, as the title goes, it's not just rebound. It's rebound and keep moving. It's the keep moving that is the goal not the confession. So let's make sure that we are indeed in fellowship, ready to study God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for its clarity, for its perspicacity, for the fact that it illuminates everything in our lives and gives us the wisdom that we need in order to face all of the adversities and difficulties in life. We thank You for Your grace that has provided everything we need, not only in terms of salvation, but also for living the spiritual life that we can face any situation, any difficulty, any level of adversity or prosperity and remain relaxed and calm because of the stability we have from Bible doctrine. Now, as we look at your word, we pray that we would be responsive to God the Holy Spirit as he teaches us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to look at one of the 
parables. This is the beginning of a series of parables. In fact, I think there's eight parables, but we're not going to look at all of them. We're just going to look at the first one. We're not going to do an analysis. These are called the kingdom parables. We're not going to do an analysis of them in detail. We're just going to focus on the first one because it is generally generally misunderstood and it has become a major battleground, so to speak, in the whole issue of what is faith, what is salvation, what constitutes fruit-bearing and works and maturity and production in the spiritual life. The normal uh, interpretation that you will get on this passage is that only the last soil uh, is, is a believer. The other three are not believers. And this relates very much to the subject that we have been studying in James, which is the relationship of faith and works. And in almost every discussion that you read on the subject, Matthew 13 comes up. So we need to look at this and analyze it both in terms of its context, that is the context of Matthew and what is going on, how Matthew is presenting the message of the kingdom and the rejection of the kingdom. The gospel is being proclaimed by Jesus Christ as it had been by John the Baptist in the synopsis of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has come as the greater son of David to present the messianic kingdom to the Jews. And they have rejected it back in chapter 12. So up to that point, one of the major terms that you find in the Gospel of Matthew is this word. Keruso. K-E-R-U-S-S-O. And that means to preach or to proclaim. And this word becomes absent after chapter 12. Up to that point, Jesus is proclaiming the message of the proximity of the Messianic kingdom. But in chapter 12, they accuse Jesus of doing what he does in the power of Satan, that he is demon-possessed. And so Jesus no longer proclaims, and what happens is he begins to teach in parables. Parabole. P-A-R-A. B-O-L-E. And this becomes a word that never has, was not used prior to chapter 13 and now becomes a, a used many times following chapter 13. We saw the same thing in our study of John that there came a point in Jesus' ministry when the, both the leadership in Israel and the people reject the gospel. And so Jesus shifts his agenda, shifts his plan, No longer is he offering the kingdom to the people because their negative volition is obvious and it is becoming entrenched as they reject him. And he begins to teach and train the disciples in private to prepare them for their role in the coming church age. Now in Matthew 13, the content revolves around the the statement that Jesus makes in verse 11. He begins. He gives the initial parable of the sower. We'll review that in a minute. We're going to skip ahead. After he teaches the multitude in this parable, the disciples come to him and they ask him, Why are you now speaking in parables? And Jesus answered and said to them, To you, that is to you disciples, the twelve, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Now we're, he's telling us, 
that revelation and the understanding of revelation is going to be limited. He is going to be explaining new doctrines, uh, new truths that uh, man on his own cannot understand. His, his intellect is limited by his spiritual condition, his spiritual death. And so he is going to make new particulars known about the kingdom of heaven, particulars that were never revealed in the Old Testament, and they are referred to as mysteries. And, of course, the term mystery comes from the Greek word musterion. It's a transliteration. Looks like this in the Greek, musterion. This is not a mystery like a mystery novel or mystery movie where you don't know what the... uh, what happened or who did it until you come to the end, it reveals to something that has not been revealed in the past, something that God has kept secret and it is not being revealed until now. So Jesus is going to explain some new things in relationship to the kingdom and in relationship to the future plan that God has for the human race. Now, as he gets into this, this particular uh, discussion, he prefaces his teaching on the kingdom of heaven with this parable, the parable of the soils. He speaks this to the multitude and he's going to introduce the concepts. He's going to introduce the key um, points in the, in the metaphor for understanding all of the following parables. So... But this particular parable does not begin with the phrase, this is like the kingdom of heaven. The reason is, is the issues in the first parable are obvious to one and all. It has to do with rejection of the message and why the message has been rejected. You can imagine that the disciples, just as we've seen in John, that the disciples have given up their jobs, they're following Jesus, they're convinced He's the Messiah, they've seen the signs, they've seen the miracles, they know who He is, they completely, have, they completely trust Him, but the people and the nation's leaders have rejected Him. And so the question on their mind is, where do we go from here? What's next? Why, why has this happened? Why have they rejected the Messiah? So when we look at this, there's... Three points I want to make in relation to context. First of all, in contrast to the parables that follow, the kingdom is not likened to any truth, any doctrine in this passage. It doesn't begin with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, as the other parables do. The Lord very carefully introduces each of the other parables with that formula, so it's safe for us to conclude that the parable of the sower, and it should be, sometimes it's called the parable of the soils, but the point is the sower who is God and his sovereignty, and that even in the midst of rejection of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ still controls history in spite of the fact that there are different responses to the message. So the Lord introduces kingdom principles, but what's in the first one is not new. This is information that's been going on for throughout the whole Old Testament, different responses to the message. The second thing we ought to note is that there is, is what I just pointed out, there's no new revelation, and the response simply relates to the everyday response that's been going on throughout human history to the gospel. Third, 
There's a careful arrangement of these parables, which indicates that this is the introductory one. The eight parables are carefully divided into two equal sections by the Lord's departure from the house to the seashore in Matthew 13.1. And then he takes leave of the crowd to go back into the house with his disciples in Matthew 13.36. So Matthew very carefully constructs what happens. Now, what, another prefatory remark is that we're going to go into an analysis comparing Matthew 13 with Luke and the Luke account, and they're different. Now, a lot of people say, well, there's contradictions, and they go to things like that as evidence that, well, how can this be true? Because Matthew says Jesus said that, Luke says he said this, and they're different accounts. Well, Jesus didn't just give this message one time. It's just like you've heard me teach certain doctrines over and over and over again. The disciples heard these messages from Jesus in many different contexts. So the context for Matthew is here. The context for Luke was a little different. But by comparing what Luke says with what Matthew says, we're going to get a very clear picture of what the Lord intended to communicate. But by Matthew's arrangement, we see the relationship between all of the parables and that there's a very careful balance. And it seems as if Matthew is relating it more historically in terms of the event. Now, let's review the parable. The parable is given beginning in verse 3. And Jesus spoke many things to them in parables. A parable is a story. It's a fictitious narrative that is designed to communicate a principle. In a parable, the people involved do not have names. They're not historical personages. They just talk about the individuals. For example, in the story of... Uh, of the uh, prodigal son. There's no names attached to those individuals. Yet when you look at the story of Lazarus and the rich man, you have the story of Lazarus, who is the beggar. You have rich detail given there that make him a real historical personage. So that's the difference between a parable and a, uh, and a true story or a historical event. So parables are merely fictitious narratives, stories that are designed to communicate spiritual truth. Bible doctrine. The sower went out to sow. So we need to identify as we go through this the different elements within the parable. There is the sower. The sower is, in this case, the Lord Jesus Christ. The sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell before the road. So you have the seed, and you have the road. You know, I'm going to use a different pen because that has such a fine point. Maybe all of these do. You have the seed. You have the road. The seeds fell beside the road and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell upon rocky places. So, as far as the first soil type, it's the road. It's that hard hard pan of the road or the pathway. Literally in the Greek, it's the path. Just as in any field, there's going to be paths going through the field, the path that the sower would walk, and it's been trodden down so it doesn't absorb the seed. You have the seed, road, birds, and then the second soil type is rocky soil. And others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And literally, this represents something like the soil we have here in Connecticut. 
it's uh, got just a thin layer of topsoil, and then it's just in the in, in this area was limestone. Here we have granite. So it's that's the idea of the rocky places. You have to clear out a lot of rocks before you're going to get any kind of solid, uh, uh, just loose soil where you can have a, a deep root put down. Others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. And when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So you have rocky soil, you have the road, the path, you have rocky soil, then you have the the thorny section, and then you have the good soil. And it's only in the last one that you have any production or fruit bearing. Now the standard thing is to look at this, and, and most people go to Matthew 13, because there's a fuller account here. So most people go to Matthew 13, but we'll discover that Luke 8 really helps us understand things. So we have to analyze this. What does it mean? Well, fortunately, the Lord did not leave it for us to guess. Look down to verse 18, and he is going to describe for us the meaning of the parable. Here then, the parable of the sower. Notice the Lord calls it the parable of the sower. So I don't think that modern man ought to come along and say, well, really the point is the soils, so let's call it the parable of the soils. It's the parable of the sower according to the Holy Spirit so, and the Lord Jesus Christ, so we ought to stick with that. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, now the anyone here is just an indefinite pronoun referring to any person. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and here it relates to the message that Jesus has been presenting. Now, Matthew calls it the word of the kingdom because Matthew is presenting Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the King of Israel. That's his theme. So he emphasizes kingdom principles. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. Now, this is an important word, so we'll stop and look at it in the Greek. This is the word suniemi. Looks like this in the Greek, S-U-N-I-E-M-I. And it means to comprehend, to understand. And it refers to what takes place in the mentality of the soul. Now, I want you to get that down because that's important. This is talking about intellectual activity. And this person has does not have the intellectual activity that culminates in a complete understanding of the gospel. Suniemi means to understand, to comprehend, to perceive, and to have insight into. It means to be able to understand and evaluate something. It means to have insight into it. And what this means here, this indicates in the gospel, this indicates that the gospel has been made clear to the hearer, but there is no understanding of spiritual realities. Why is that? That is because the unbeliever is spiritually brain dead. So you have the evangelist, or the person witnessing, communicates the gospel. And the gospel goes to the individual because they are spiritually brain dead, God the Holy Spirit 
will function as a human spirit in order to make it understandable to them. Then they have a decision to make. They're either going to accept it or reject it. At this point, it begins to enter into the outer lobe of the mentality of the soul called the noose. Now, sometimes, because the innermost part is called the cardia, the Bible uses cardia just to relate to the whole soul. It's, it's a metaphor. Sometimes we speak about a football team that way. We'll talk about a coach. We'll name a particular coach and say, boy, he really messed up the other day. And we're really referring, using him to stand for the whole team. And we do that all, all the time in terms of metaphor. And so the word heart is used here to relate to the whole inner part of the individual. And he fails to understand the gospel, not the basic mechanics of it, but he rejects it. So it is not a full understanding. It does not include believing. So he understands it at one level, but he doesn't understand it to believe it, so he rejects it. And there is no salvation. Now that's clear and everybody agrees that this first soil type indicates the unbeliever. When anyone hears the word of God, of the kingdom, and remember hearing the word akuo indicates understanding at some level, and does not fully understand it, that is in terms of having true spiritual insight, the evil one comes, and this is Satan, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, cardia. So the heart here stands for the whole intellectual process of thinking in the soul. He snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Now this is an unbeliever. Now we need to, what I want you to do is to find something to hold your place in Matthew 13 because we're going to go back and forth between Matthew 18 Matthew 13 and, and Luke 8. Luke 8, verse 11. Jesus begins to explain the parable there, same parable. He says, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Now notice the difference. Matthew said it's the word of the kingdom. Luke calls it the word of God. It, both passages refer to the same message, but from a different perspective. Luke refers to it in terms of its source. Matthew refers to it in terms of its content. Both are accurate. Verse 12 in Luke 8. Those beside the road are those who have heard. That is, that seed that fell on the path. Are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. So it's the devil in Luke. It's the evil one in Matthew. He's the same person. Lucifer, before he fell called Satan the accuser after he fell. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, and that is from within the innermost part of their thinking, so that it's gotten into their heart. At one level they've understood it, but not to the point of belief. And since they haven't understood it to the point of belief, Matthew says they just didn't understand it, not fully understand it. And here we see that he takes away the word from their heart that they may not believe and be saved. Now what does that mean? You can see where it would be very easy for somebody to say, well, it's not their fault they don't believe. Satan took it away before they understood it, and they never had a chance. But we have to compare Scripture with Scripture and remember that in a parable, 
we are talking with a lot of figurative language and metaphor. So we have to understand the use of language here or we'll make some serious mistakes. So we'll look at this in terms of a couple of points. Number one, the first soil, which is the ground, the path, the hard path, represents a heart without spiritual discernment because there's no spiritual rebirth. Without the human spirit, man cannot understand the things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 14 indicates the natural man or the soulish man, that is a person who just has body and soul, not body, soul, and spirit, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. So the first soil represents the individual who has no human spirit. There's no discernment. Even though the Holy Spirit has made it understandable, they reject it in terms of negative volition, and they don't want to listen. So when the word of the kingdom is proclaimed, there's no understanding, and it says that Satan snatches away. Now, in what sense does Satan snatch it away? We have to go here to 2 Corinthians 4.4 to understand the dynamics. Now, I don't want you to turn there. I'll just read it to you. And there we read about Satan's modus operandi. He says, this passage says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, and that's a title of Satan, he is the God of this world, and he is still the God of this world. And Paul writes this after the cross, that Satan is still the prince in the power of the air, and he has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Now, how does Satan do that? How does Satan blind the minds of the unbelieving? Does this mean that Satan runs around and every time somebody gives the gospel to someone who rejects it, that Satan has shown up and reaches inside their mind and pulls this out? No, that's absolutely absurd. First of all, remember, Satan is a creature, so he is not ubiquitous. He is not omnipresent. He is limited. He is usually in the throne room of God attacking believers. He is not down running around the earth, although he does that on occasion. He has all of his demons, but more than that, he has a cosmic system. The cosmic system comes derives from the Greek word cosmos, which has to do with an orderly system of thinking. And Satan is constantly promoting human viewpoint systems of thought which provide legitimizing rationales to our desire to reject God. So there's all kinds of ways we can rationalize the truth and reject God and rationalize away from it. And so through the various false philosophies, Satan blinds men to the truth of God's Word. That is the thrust. So how does Satan blind the mind of the unbeliever? How does he snatch the gospel? It's through various uh, systems of thought that give the person a rationale for rejecting God and not believing in the gospel. Now, the reason it mentions Satan, of course, is because he is the author of the cosmic system, and he is the one who stands at, at its head, so everything ultimately goes back to the one who is at the head. So Satan is mentioned because he is, it's his system. It's his opposition to the plan and program of God. Now, when we look at Luke, and the way this is expressed here, it says that the, that the purpose of his taking away the word from their heart is a result clause that they may not believe and be saved. So, clearly this person has not believed and is not saved. Now, the reason this is important is because Luke introduced terminology 
that Matthew did not use. Look at the comparison. Matthew says, when anyone hears the Word of God and does not understand it. And that's as far as Matthew went. But Luke gives us clarity. Luke says, it's taken away so that they will not believe. Luke tells us the issue is faith. The issue with the first person is, the first soil type, is that this person does not believe and is not saved. Now let's go to the second soil type. Well, is the second one saved? Let's turn back to Matthew. Matthew 13, verse 20. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the um, soil in Connecticut. The soil sown on rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Now notice the difference between the first and the second. The first one hears the word and does not understand it. The second one hears it and receives it with joy. Now if that's all we had, our first impression would be that this person's a believer. And we would be right. Because everywhere else that you have this word used, joy, is kara. Looks like this in the Greek, kara, C-H-A-R-A. It refers to the kind of inner happiness that only a believer possesses. This is the kind of joy that Jesus says he will share with the believer. So at first glance, it would seem, if we didn't know anything else, that because he receives the word with joy, we would think he's a believer. Well, there's further support for the idea that this person is a believer. The word that is translated received is, is also illuminating. This is the Greek word, lambano. L-A-M-B-A-N-O. It means to take or to receive. And it is used in John 1.12. What does that verse say? You ought to have this memorized. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to be called the sons of God. Well, what is John talking about? We've studied that, in fact, referred to it Sunday. Lombano is, a, is a, another term that is used synonymously in many passages with belief. Just mentioned John 1.12. Another passage is John 17.8. Let's turn over and look at John 17, verse 8. Here Jesus is speaking. He says, For the words that thou gavest me I have given to them, and they received them. What does that mean? It means they believed what Jesus taught them. The same thing is used in Hebrews 10.26. We see a parallel between lambano, when it is used to mean believe. So lambano is used to mean believe. Further, So what we see here is that the word receiving, the receiving lambano, is analogous to faith or a synonym to faith or belief. And it is done with joy, which is an attitude that is associated in the Gospel writers with something that comes from God. It is not just a merely superficial emotional response. Now, the interesting thing is that as I was looking around and doing some research on this passage, the way you'll normally find this being taught is somebody will say, well, this 
he received it with joy. This is the emotional conversion. This is the person who just gets all excited. You know, he's all happy. He's learned about it. But there's no real faith here. It's just emotional conversion. A lot of excitement. A lot of enthusiasm. But there's no real faith. Now, we ought to think about that a little bit because there is a parallel in Luke that is going to help us understand it. So, look back to the Luke passage. Luke says... And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. But it's not lambano. It's dekomai. This is how it looks in the Greek. And it is a synonym to lambano. D-E-C-H-O-M-A-I. And it is also used synonymously for belief throughout Luke. Luke's writings. He says, Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in the time of temptation, that is, in the time of testing, they fall away. Now, this word decamai is used for believing the gospel in various passages in Acts. And remember, Luke wrote Acts. In Acts 8.14 we read, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. And that's a summary after they heard about Peter and John going up to the Samaritans, preaching the gospel, and the Samaritans responded how? By believing the gospel. So Luke calls that receiving the word of God. In Acts 17.11 he says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. That's talking about the Berean believers. They received the word with great eagerness. What does that mean? It means to believe the gospel. Acts 11.1 says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word. And that's referring to Peter taking the gospel to Cornelius. So Luke says that Cornelius' response of believing the gospel is receiving the word. Acts 11.15, Peter recounts, the episode there, and he says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And then in verse 18, And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So when you compare 11.1 with 11.15 through 18, you see that receiving the word means faith. It means believing the gospel. So Luke makes it clear that those who fell on rocky soil heard the gospel and believed on it and had great joy. And in other places in the Scriptures, it's clear that kara refers not merely to emotional excitement. There's no no clear place that it does that, to some superficial emotional excitement. It always refers to that mental attitude of happiness and joy that comes to a believer. So here it is clear that it refers to uh, saving faith. And it's also, look at the synonym. They receive the word with joy, and these having no firm root... They believe for a while. It's right there in the text. 
that receiving the word with joy is belief. So, receiving equals belief. So, believing here is clearly saving faith. Now, I want to make a couple of points about this, just in terms of review, before we analyze the doctrine of faith. First, there is no such thing as a, biblically, as a false faith, an inadequate faith, or a pseudo-faith. The Bible never uses an adjective to qualify faith. Secondly, for a time, says says they believed for a while, or for a time, for a while is not an issue. Never does the Scripture say, believe for the rest of your life and you will be saved. Now, the issue comes up, the person will say, well, it was just a temporary faith. It wasn't a real faith. If it was a real faith, it would have lasted longer. Well, how long is longer? How long is belief for a while? A couple of years? A couple of decades? How long is too long? And if it's ten years, well, is nine years and 364 days too short? Is nine years and 360 days too short? Well, when does it become too short and when is it too long? See, the Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and what happens at that moment in time is so phenomenal that it can't be reversed. Third, to produce anything in agriculture implies germination and life. When the seed goes into the ground, if something happens to that seed and it produces a sprout, and I've got some little things growing that I've planted some seeds recently, and they've got about a quarter of an inch of green showing above the soil. And that means there's life there. It's not dead anymore. There is life there. And if I dug it up and looked at the seed, there would be a little bit of a, of a root sprout coming out the other side. You see, you can't, biologically speaking, you can't have life without having you can't have germination without producing life and without producing at least the beginnings of a root and that's why the translation in the new american standard is more accurate it says these have no firm root when you have that fresh seed that's just sprouted and just putting out that new sprout and just barely putting out a root if it's on a thin layer of soil There won't be anything for that root to grab onto and to provide stability for the new plant. And if in that early stage of life something comes along, the wind or something else, to knock it loose, then it will be be knocked off and will no longer grow and will not come to to a stage where it can uh, produce fruit. And so that's the point that the Lord is making. It's not that they did not believe but that it's a temporary uh, belief. They're not, they don't have any persistence or endurance in the spiritual life. James, call, James called it hupomones, endurance. And so when testing came, rather than responding by applying the Word of God and growing to maturity, as James outlines in the James 1, 2 through 4, they responded by human viewpoint, and here we have a failure as a believer. They're clearly believers. But there is no firm root. 
So that was the fourth point, is the New American Standard translates it firm root, which indicates that clearly life is there. Regeneration has taken place. Fifth, though the first soil represents a person that does not understand, this does not mean that because the phrase understanding is not mentioned in the second, that the second did not understand. Luke, very simple, Luke says they believed. You can't believe something you don't understand. Now, that's the trouble with some people is they never really understand the gospel and they do have a, a false conversion because they never really have faith. But if you believe something, you have to understand it. And Jesus is clear here that they believe the gospel. So he doesn't have to stay, say, state the obvious. He doesn't have to say they understand and then they believe. He doesn't have to take them through. They're not kindergartners. It was obvious, though, that the disciples may not have understood a lot of things, but they understood that. So when people come along and say, well, he doesn't mention understanding, that's just an argument from silence and that doesn't work. Finally, sixth, the issue in the parable... Oh, one other thing about, about understanding. When we come to the fourth soil, the passage doesn't say that that person received the word with joy either. But that doesn't mean that the fourth soil doesn't receive the word with joy. Just because it's not stated doesn't mean it's not there. And then sixth, the issue in the parable is production in light of understanding kingdom revelation. This is why context is so important. Jesus is talking about the fact that he's no longer going to be clearly communicating kingdom doctrine. He's going to be couching it in parabolic terms so that only those who are truly positive will understand the doctrine. So the issue here is, in this whole context, is production in relation to understanding kingdom revelation. He is not teaching a parable about salvation. Now, salvation is clearly present, but that's not the main point that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about production in relation to understanding kingdom doctrine. Now, having said that, we need to review the doctrine of faith because what always happens at this point is somebody comes along and makes the comment that, well, all you mean by faith is it's just intellectual. You have to have more than just intellectual agreement in order to be saved. But let's think about that for just a minute. It sounds good, but usually they want to make a distinction between a head belief and a heart belief. That's the way the old preachers used to do it. But first of all, the word heart in the Bible always refers to the intellectual processes in the cognitive part of the soul. So it's not emotion. There's not a, sometimes preachers would say, well, they're, they're only separated by 12 inches. The difference between the head and the heart. Of course, that might make a great sermon. I don't know, but it certainly doesn't make any sense biblically. So we have to talk about what is faith. First point, faith is a mental activity that is triggered by volition. Well, let's look at the soul a minute. If we're going to understand this, we better understand the components of the soul. First of all, there is self-consciousness. Secondly, there is mentality. Third, there is emotion. Fourth, there is volition. And fifth, there is a conscience. The mentality of the soul is comprised of two arenas, the noose and the innermost part, the cardia. 
The emotion is the responder of the soul. We have good emotion and bad emotion. The volition is the decider, the chooser in the soul. Now, when you're told or issued a command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to respond, you have to use your volition to decide to believe or not to believe. But you believe with your heart. And this is the thinking part of the soul. Because you have to understand the Word of God. Now, I read a commentary on Luke put out by Dallas Theological Seminary. And I know the individual who wrote that. Unfortunately, he was a classmate of mine and never should have been allowed on the faculty. They did eventually get rid of him. But in that commentary, he wrote that the reason this is just intellectual faith is we don't have to just believe facts. We have to have a relationship with the person. And, oh, doesn't that sound good? But it doesn't pass muster when you think about it. Because how do you know anything about Jesus? The only way we know anything about Jesus is because there are propositions. A proposition is is a statement that is verifiable or falsifiable. And there are statements about Jesus. That Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Lamb of God. That Jesus is uh, undiminished deity and true humanity. That Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. These are clear statements in Scripture. And that salvation is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the only way you or I know Jesus is the words of Scripture. We do not have an existential. We do not see Him. He does not reveal Himself personally to us. The only way we can know Him is through the words of Scripture. And these propositions express facts. So what we do is we believe the Scriptures. We believe the facts the Scripture tells us about the historical life of Jesus of Nazareth and that He fulfilled all of the conditions of the Old Testament and that He was without sin and went to the cross and died. And we believe that. We accept those propositions as true. Once we understand them, we agree with them. We give our intellectual, it's certainly not emotional assent, we give our intellectual assent, that's what that means to agree that this is true, that what is true? See, that's the issue. The proposition you believe. If you believe Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, that he died and was buried and rose from the grave on the third day, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, the Scripture says you're saved. Those are the facts you have to believe. We don't believe a person. The facts, by believing the facts, results in a relationship with the person. We don't first believe in the person because we can only know the person by understanding the facts of Scripture and agreeing that they are true, specifically that Christ died as our substitute. So, first of all, faith is a mental activity triggered by volition. As such, faith cannot be emotion because emotion cannot respond to a command. Secondly, faith is always directed toward an object which can be expressed as a proposition. 
It always is focused on an object that's expressed as a proposition. Therefore, faith is not a function of emotion. It is a function of reason. It is a function of cognition, of intellection. You believe with your mind only. You do not believe with your emotions or your feelings. Third, therefore you do not believe directly in a person, in this case a historical person, or come to salvation through a relationship with Jesus. First, you believe the propositions in Scripture that inform you about Jesus and His saving work on the cross. So this tells you that faith is rational. It is not irrational or emotional. Sometimes people can believe what is irrational, but faith itself is not irrational. People can believe all kinds of crazy things. The crazy things may be irrational, but faith itself is an intellectual activity. It's not irrational. It's not emotional. Point number four, therefore, faith is an activity of the mentality of the soul directed first and foremost to a proposition. And that is what the Scriptures present, as in Acts 16.31. Point number five, faith has no merit in itself. No merit in itself. All the merit is in the object. It is not because I believe, it is through faith. Jesus Christ has all of the merit. Sixth, faith as an intellectual activity excludes emotion, irrationalism, and mysticism. It excludes emotion, irrationalism, and mysticism. Faith agrees that something is true. Emotion, irrationalism, and mysticism are enemies to faith. Now, we may have an emotional response after we're saved because we're so grateful that we're not going to go to the lake of fire. And our soul may be flooded with joy. It certainly was in the case of this second soil. He received the word with joy. There's nothing wrong with having that emotional response. But the emotional response is not the faith. It's the result. Just as the new life and the relationship is not the same as faith, but is the result of faith. Okay. Back to our passage, or one example, just to show how we apply this. There is a hymn, I Know Whom I Have Believed. Now, one of the reasons we don't sing that is because verse 2 reads, I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart. You see, that's a lordship gospel. That's the idea that there is a faith that's in Christ that doesn't save and there is a genuine faith that does save. You see what, what Lordship Gospel people have to say in the, in the second soil is that this is a belief in Christ that doesn't save. And yet where in the Bible do you find any evidence that somebody can believe in Christ in the Gospel and not be saved? Okay, let's go back to our passage in Matthew, the parable of the sower, back in Matthew. Matthew thirteen twenty-one. 
This is the third soil. This is the thorny soil. Or, or, excuse me, verse 21 in Matthew continues to define the problem with the uh, rocky soil. Has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary when affliction or persecution arises because of the Word. Notice, because he's a believer, he now encounters testing. And he fails to apply doctrine, so he falls away. Doesn't lose his salvation, but he is no longer an advancing, maturing believer. The third soil type is in verse 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, that is, hears with acceptance, he's a believer, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And here we have the word, the Greek word genomai, which means to become something you were not before. It becomes unfruitful. The implication is that there was some fruit, but it becomes unfruitful because there's no application of doctrine. He does not pass the test related to the details of life, and he lets worry, mental attitude sins, and he lets the desire for the things of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke things out, choke out the gospel. So he's focused on temporal things rather than eternal things and therefore cannot advance beyond the testing and has no production, becomes unfruitful. So then we go back to our passage in Matthew, I mean, excuse me, in Luke chapter 8. We go back to the passage in Luke chapter 8, in order to get the comparison. Luke 8 should be down around verse 15, 14. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are, they, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. In other words, They can't handle the tests of adversity or prosperity. What have we seen in James? That the way to handle the tests of adversity and prosperity, the way to handle it is through doctrine in the soul. And if there's no doctrine, you can't handle the tests of adversity and prosperity. And the result is, no fruit is brought to maturity. Now, when you compare the genomai in Matthew 13 which implies fruit, with the statement in 14 that there is fruit, but it's not brought to maturity. You see that there is production even in the third soil, but it is not production that culminates in any spiritual growth. And then we come in verse 15 to the last soil type. The seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast, and bear fruit with perseverance. And then we turn back to Matthew 13, Matthew 13, verse 23, And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit, and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirtyfold. So the emphasis here is on production. It's the same point that James is making that we have to have production in the spiritual life if the spiritual life is going to have any validity for us in terms of phase two spiritual growth and salvation. All four of these have heard the word. 
The difference is not the lack of exposure to the message of the gospel. The issue is what they do with it. Their volition. The first is negative and rejects it. The second and third is positive to the gospel, but negative to doctrine. These are failures in the spiritual life. They begin to grow, and then the details of life, the adversities of life, the testings in life, choke them out, and there is no advance to spiritual maturity. This is what happens to so many uh, baby and infant believers is they never get any doctrine and they immediately get distracted in the spiritual life and get focused on all the cares of life and they never advance to any level of spiritual maturity. So what we see here is just a reaffirmation of the same point that James is making in James chapter 2. And that is doctrine without application is dead. It has no production value in the spiritual life. So what we conclude is the importance of production. That if we're going to have any validity in the spiritual life, anything of lasting value, then what that demands is production. And production comes under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, continuous walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, taking in the Word of God so we have doctrine in our soul, and then on the basis of that doctrine in our soul, applying it to the tests of life. And the result is different levels of production, just as there are different levels of believers. Some advance to spiritual maturity and just barely become spiritual adults, and others advance all the way to spiritual maturity, and they glorify God to the maximum. Now, next time, we'll come back to James next week, and we'll continue our study there in the third chapter of James, where we begin to study the issue of being slow to speak. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for the clarity of your word and understanding it, and it is our desire that we advance in the knowledge of your word to apply it, that we might be productive and fruitful believers. And we know that we can only do that as we take in your word under the filling of the Holy Spirit and then apply it to the tests of life. So, Father, help us to be encouraged by these things and remember them as we go through various tests this week. In Christ's name, amen.